0: Welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show for average Joe investors
1: where we talk finance and how to achieve success. Hi, welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show where we talk about finance, business, and achieving success. Today on the show, we have Ben Hammond. Ben has 10 years of experience in the financial industry and a master's degree in political economics. Ben is a macro thinker. Ben, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, buddy. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I
1: wanted to get you on because I know you have your education, your background, you have a master's in political economics. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what you learned in that program and how you see the world unfolding today and those avenues.
0: Yeah, sure. So like uh, political economics is kind of one of the newer fields in uh, in politics. It's a political science field, social science. So one of those fun things that it's fun to take and hard to get employed with afterwards. But it's very cool. It sort of uh, follows the, the movement of money and talks about how economic relations and the, the movement of money and big corporations and stuff like that can impact governance in the world and can uh, impact global decisions and even real power, real politic decisions like whether or not to go to war with a country. So really, really cool. And then obviously the the way that the world is today with globalization, super interconnected, the markets are all interconnected, supply chains are all interconnected. It can be super impactful in terms of discussing some of the levers that countries will pull to try to put pressure on other countries right now instead of going to war necessarily. So, for example, Belarus right now, and I think today, just in the headlines, threatened to shut the gas off to Western Europe, to, to Poland, over their border disputes and possible sanctions on the country that the, the European Union is going to put on. So obviously, big time economic uh, issues there, Belarus, if they cut off the the gas, it means that the gas prices, which have already spiked in Europe are going to go through the roof, and it's really going to threaten their gas supplies just as they go into winter. So it's looking at situations like that, and seeing how it impacts the, the world and
1: decisions that are made by governments. That's really interesting. You know, something that I've been following a lot closely lately has been the green energy movement, and that's kind of, I think, going to have a huge global impact. So I wonder what kind of tailwinds do you think you could see in that industry or, or headwinds for that matter?
0: I think that you see mostly tailwinds in that industry right now, to be honest with you. Like this definitely isn't necessarily my, my specialty, my forte, but I but like like yourself, I've got a lot of interest in, in stuff like that. And it is a big disruptor with what's going on with the world. Obviously, we just had the COP26 summit there. The, the big thing that we're seeing right now is that there's a lot of pressure from civil society to, to sort of push companies and governments in a certain way to, to try to obviously reduce greenhouse gases, be a little bit more accountable when it comes to the environment. And that has created a, an unprecedented sort of environment where, where new companies have opportunities and, and investors have opportunities that they didn't have. You know, ten years ago, maybe even a once-in-a-lifetime situation. I mean, I'm thinking like the tech boom and stuff like that. Is similar sort of situation where a new market comes online that doesn't that didn't exist before, and there's a there's a lot of push and drive and investment and excitement behind it, right?
1: One thing that you and I have discussed before was that the governments sort of control money flow in some ways, like you say, and for green energy, they are essentially creating a new market. And you mentioned the comparison with the cannabis market that's that was a market that already existed but it was illegal and what the government did was enable it to be a legal market and the green energy is kind of like a new upcoming market where they want to bring down the co2 emissions that are produced under the status quo exactly
0: like with the the cannabis market what like we had talked about previously just you and i you've got a situation where there's an existing demand but for a product and yet it's been stomped out by government policy and then suddenly they remove the impediment to that demand and and bring it into the mainstream. Obviously, huge opportunity for investors, but just like we were saying as well, and I think we're seeing this with the green industry as well, is that you have a ton of new startups and new uh, small cap companies coming into the environment and trying to compete. And I think with the with the cannabis market, you saw a ton of consolidations. Some com- companies were viable, some companies were not viable. They were sort of in a rat race to consolidate to get to larger economies of scale, to really begin to control the supply. And so you did see a huge boom in market share prices of a lot of companies and obviously a lot of interest even before you had any income coming in. And I think you see that a lot with the the green companies right now as well. I mean, if you look at the, I noticed on some of the previous uh, podcasts talking about price to earnings ratios and stuff like that. I mean, a lot of these companies have zero income. Right now, relatively speaking, I mean, they're, they're, they're more or less like debt financing and bringing on new patents and stuff like that, saying very important in the future, but we need startup capital and stuff like that to get it running. And I think that you're going to see a few of those companies that are successful and a lot of them that end up either failing or getting absorbed by larger companies and buyouts and stuff like that as the, the entire market starts to consolidate and try to develop those economies of scale.
1: They do tend to be speculative markets when there's this new industry coming up. And I've followed both the cannabis industry as well as now the green carbon neutral net zero industry. And. One thing I've noticed that is a little bit different is that in the green energy space, a lot of these companies are established and they're trying to pull back, like oil, for example. And so sometimes some of the companies that get on my radar are already profitable, whereas in cannabis, as you say, they're basically all no profit, purely speculative. But then also there are the odd green energy companies that are more or less being funded by the government and they are surviving on incentives. So, you know, it is interesting that People will still invest in these companies even though they make no money, just based on their technology. And
0: I think the whole market is really interesting. Like you said, you talked about headwinds with the with the green economy. I mean, when we talked about COPA COP26. When we talked to you when, when you saw greta thunberg there saying blah 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 they're, they're not aggressive enough they're not doing anything it's all just talk they're they're not really making a real difference well there's a reason for that right it's that our entire society the energy that we that we drive on like we're in, we're an oil-based society that's it that's our energy source uh, oil and fossil fuel and with the exception of things that have already been put in place like hydroelectric and uh, now coming online, solar and wind. Oil is still the major, and fossil fuels are still the major energy source in most of the world. Canada's a leader, I think about 83% of our grid is supplied by non-carbon or at least non-coal sources. In Ontario, obviously, we phased out coal altogether, but I mean, you have impacts with that too, right? So you try to go green, you phase out coal. There's a reason why countries use coal. There's a reason why company, countries use gas and oil. It's because it's it's more financially feasible. You start to transition to the green economy, there's gonna be a cost for that financially. And we're, we're seeing that in the pocketbooks. And, and essentially what you said is right. They're not only funding, the governments are not only funding the companies that are trying to do these green initiatives, that, which sometimes aren't profitable. Like that's a market distortion right there when government steps in and tries to help out. So they're not only doing that, but they're also helping to pay our electricity bills through subsidies, right? Because our electricity bills take, just take it just in Ontario here started to spike, and then we had COVID hit, and we had uh, some challenges around uh, you, you know financial outlook and whether or not uh, people were going to have income coming in, and suddenly we start getting huge subsidies on our uh, on our electricity bills. So I mean, we're footing the bill for that in terms of uh, in terms of picking up government debt and we're going to be paying for it for years to come and in the terms of taxes and stuff like that to try to pay it down so it's not coming for free and the challenge in the developed world the industrialized world i mean we do have a little bit more Financial wiggle room to be able to put the investment into infrastructure, and even there, it's going to be hard. Even there, you've got an infrastructure that we've literally spent trillions of dollars on trying to develop and to maintain: pipeline networks, uh, you know, energy grids, power plants, uh, the workers that maintain them. Think about how much, uh, how much man hours in terms of labor goes into maintaining that entire system, and then you're trying to flick it on a dime—just turn it 180 degrees before the end of the next decade because really that's the that's the 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 turning point right that's the the point where if we don't reduce emissions below a certain level we're going to miss our targets and and global temperatures are going to rise more than a a degree and a half and how you do that how do you do that without a a significant cost in terms of material well-being for everybody right like we won't do that for free we've got to pay for it
1: and not only financially but something that i've been hearing is that in europe they have issues with their grid so they can bring in all of the solar panels and put them on roofs, but then the grid can't sustain it in the rural areas. So in order to upgrade that, they're gonna to have to mine materials that's yep. gonna burn fossil fuels. You're gonna create carbon. On top of that, the materials it takes to build their solar panels it's gonna create carbon and other gases. And it's you know, one thing that I have heard as far as coal, coal is still very abundant in the world. And one of the things that I've been hearing is that before they totally phase out coal they have to phase out the subsidies like I hear a lot of companies are saying yeah we're we're phasing out or a lot of countries are saying we're phasing out subsidies but you know, they're still not phasing out coal. They're just, I guess, assuming that those plants will be able to run without. the and,
0: and and how can they? I mean, we we've seen in two different places in the world in the last month we've heard about brownouts in China, where they've uh, where where the grids have you know, essentially run rolling blackouts because they don't have the power to maintain them. And we we see in the UK where they started to, they started to have challenges to to for of supply on their energy grid because of natural gas shortages and 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 price spikes and how did they deal with both of those issues well they started mining more coal they're doing it right now they they they've upped the the, the mining intake especially in china to try to support that and why because coal's cheap and it's easy to burn and it's a, again and it's an easy power source but unfortunately it's a big polluter as well talk about like esg Investing and stuff like that, and I think it 's a great idea in theory, but I think in practice, if the whole idea of investing in the ESG is to try to create change in the world through grassroots movement, I think that it 's going to be challenged by the realities of, of what our society is based on you know, what it 's built on the the, the, the infrastructure that it 's built on. We need to have the replacement industries in place before we can turn off oil and coal now can we do that in in less than half of a decade again like i think in theory we could but not without cost not without impact and quality of life and cost of living i think that, uh, that the tax base would have to go up i think that a lot of these uh, these type of technologies would not be profitable for the long time and have to have to be propped up by government money and I'm not sure the government's willing to spend on that. I'm not sure people are willing to put the bill in terms of
1: like higher electricity costs, for example. And it also, you know, this is a global problem. Something I saw today, actually, I was just kind of snooping around Wikipedia, I decided to look at energy usage. And so... You know, China's population is about four times what the U.S. is. Yeah. And yet their nation as a whole only uses less than double gigawatt per hour. So I've had this thought in my mind for a while about, you know, we talk, we're finance guys, we talk about lifestyle creep. You make more money. And as you make more money, you spend more money. And I think that we're kind of in an energy creep globally. So the more energy you produce, the more your citizens use. And it's going to be difficult, I think, to find a way to make enough energy to sustain that creep.
0: Yeah, i think if you look a bit statistically canada's one of the worst per capita in the world in terms of like uh our carbon footprint right and that's the that's the big argument that the that that the industrializing world like the big what we used to call the brick countries like your china your india your brazil that's it that's the argument that they always make and yeah and especially the ones developing in africa they they say like listen we should uh, we should be set at a different scale here we shouldn't be held to the same standards as the industrialized countries in the west because we produce less per capita and it wasn't us who created this issue to begin with i mean we're looking at today the fact that they they use less in capita less per capita and they're using literally more than they ever had in the entire history of their country we've been pumping out greenhouse gases for the last 200 years and impacting the environment as we've worked to industrialize. So, I mean, they've got a point. So again, there's a, well, if you're looking at ESG on a a global level, if you're looking at it through governance uh, with actual political governments, I mean, do we in the West have an obligation to pay for the upgrades of the industrializing world to make sure that they're off coal and onto green energies? And again, where's that money going to come from? Where is that investment going to come from? Is it going to come from private industries, private investors, right? They it could. I mean, if there's, a, if there's an opportunity to make money, it could. But most likely, I mean, they're looking for governments to fit the, foot the bill in terms of aid packages and stuff like that. And then you've got to look at other things, too. Like, like if, we look, if we stop looking strictly at the environmental, which is the big part of the ESG, and we start looking at the social. Is there a concern morally about investing in a country like China, who has a spotty human rights record, who arguably uh, has a, a situation where they have re education camps in part of their country, who doesn't have the humanist sort of liberal protections for individuals that we have over in the West that we cherish really highly? Like, if you look at the vaccine mandates, look at how much pushback you have on that in the West around infringing on our individual freedoms and rights. It's not necessarily even like a it, it's not even necessarily the fact that everybody thinks that the vaccine isn't a good idea. I think the majority of people who who haven't taken it probably disagree with the with with how effective the vaccine is and is concerned about uh, the side effects that come along with it. But the biggest argument I think that you see with is my body uh, my decision. You're infringing on my individual rights. You shouldn't be able to threaten my livelihood force me to get a vaccine or a shot in my body where i should have the individual right in china they don't guarantee any of the individual rights so even if they even if we are funding green initiatives as he is a morally right to be financing and, and propping up governments that don't have the same value system that uh, that we have over here
1: it depends how you weight the, e, the S, or the g what do you think, based on your background and your education, money is clearly flowing into the ESG sector. I wonder what your thoughts are on what impact that'll have in our North American economy. Are we going to see more money flowing from other places based on ESG investment? Just for the fact that they want to invest in these funds individual investors want to know that their banks mutual funds have a high esg profile and a company can say that they have a, a high esg rating maybe they can get some cheaper debt with green bonds
0: yeah a hundred percent i mean there's there's two ways to you that i think that you can look at it one you from an investor's point of view okay or from an individual's point of view one is is can you be profitable is there profit to be made by investing esg and the other one is a more of an activist point of view. Can I create change in the world from the bottom up by promoting companies that I feel are going to take the world in the right, right direction and avoiding companies that don't? And we, you're right, we are seeing it. Like We've started to see protests outside of financial institutions based on the fact that they have oil uh, companies in their portfolios and in uh, protesting the fact that they support oil. I think, so to answer, the, to answer the first part of that, whether or not it's profitable, I think it can be. If you go straight to ESG, um, I think there are pros and cons. I think the, the pros of it are that ESG companies tend to be very future oriented, very tech oriented. I think that the governments at this point are, are supporting it. So there's probably financial uh, carrots that companies are gonna be able to pick up by, uh, by, by supporting this mandate and, and sort of taking it to a more environmentally friendly or socially friendly uh, direction, which is awesome. I think that everybody agrees that that's probably better for the planet, better for everybody else. I think that they're also gonna to start to integrate sticks um, we, you already mentioned sort of uh, just in passing carbon pricing and stuff like that. I mean, we already have sort of a, a somewhat carbon pricing, carbon trading system in Canada, and they do in Europe as well. Uh, and that is starting to factor in to some of the company's uh, decisions. Like if you look at the oil sands and stuff like that, they're looking at carbon offset. They're looking at, uh, I think I, re- I, I was listening to a podcast the other day where they were saying Suncor is uh, building a new uh, facility in the the tar sands. That's going to be connected to a huge solar energy array, a huge solar energy grid. So they're going to try to use renewable energy to, to sort of drive the entire operation to sort of offset the carbon footprint. You hear about tree planting initiatives. You hear about carbon trading and stuff like that. Uh, and then, in, especially, I think, for out west, for for, for the Alberta industries, I think uh, carbon capture is a thing that they're really banking a lot of money in and, and hoping that they're going to be able to use that in order to offset the carbon footprint and stuff like that. So technologies that go into doing that, I think, are are going to be huge for investment purposes and stuff like that, too. The biggest cons that I see you know, for for money making. Is that by investing only in ASG, you're, you're necessarily limiting the, the the scope of the companies that you that you can invest in. So you might be foregoing good financial opportunities in order to to invest more with your heart or with your conscience. I think the biggest risk for individual investors, especially stock investors, and I know you, you like you, you I, I've heard the, the some of the previous podcasts that you've done, and like I know you enjoy stock trading and stuff like that. It's a it, it's one of the reasons why you've gotten into doing this show it would be natural interest and curiosity, and wanted want to talk to people about it. My biggest concern is around the consolidations and around profitability around a lot of these companies. I think that it is going to be challenging to build a really diversified portfolio for an individual investor. And I mean, that's the case normally with anyone. I mean, if you've got a thousand bucks to invest in at this point, you can't even buy a share of Amazon. You, You might be able to buy a share of Tesla right? Maybe one share. It depends on It depends on if Elon puts a Twitter poll out this week to, to decide whether or not he should pay his taxes by selling Tesla shares, right? You know, for an individual investor, it's hard to build a really diversified portfolio. And I think especially in an emerging sector, like the green energy sector, diversification to offset risk is going to be really, really important because you can think that you know everything about a company. You can research it up and down. You can think that it's really well positioned, that it's really future oriented. And then all of a sudden tomorrow, they come out with some news that they're doing this or they're doing that, or they've missed expectations or their numbers aren't, aren't quite right, or they've lost a big contract. That's a big one. I remember a company, I don't know if you've heard about a Workhorse Delivery Van Company up for a big contract for the US Postal Service in the States. Uh, they thought they were the front runner, missed it, and the, and the share price dropped by about 80% almost overnight right diversification is always always super key when you when you talk about investing and, and the problem is for people that are just getting into the market it's challenging to have the capital to to actually build a really really diversified portfolio and it's challenging to have the time to manage it as well right uh, to be able to do your really deep dives on companies and, and to be really able to understand what's going on and i think that's especially the case with the with ESG and the green sector and stuff like that. I mean, there's no standards, really. I mean, you, you can talk about like ESG scoring and stuff like that and how they're stacking up against other companies in the industry. But every major investor uses uh, uses different criteria. For example, let's talk about oil. Some say no fossil fuels, but what what happens if an oil company like Suncor decides to uh, offset the carbon footprint, invest in carbon capture technology? Well, does that suddenly qualify for ESG? Some people would say yes. Some people would say no. Carbon capture is putting a band aid solution. We need to get rid of oil altogether, right? And so you you get these discrepancies within the industry, even within Canada itself, but from from investment investor to investor. And then if you look at it globally, you're going to get pushback from different countries. Depending, for example, if you're Saudi Arabia, you're probably not too keen to say, "Yeah, no, we we're we're going to shut down our oil, and we're going to shut it down by 2029." Yeah, that's not gonna happen. And you're gonna get pushback because everybody's got that interest. So I think that being able to do the homework and stuff like that on on some of these companies is gonna be challenging as well. A way to get around that is to let other people do your your homework for you. I mean, a a lot of the big investment firms and stuff like that offer ESG funds. It allows you to be able to invest with a little bit of money and invest in a really diversified portfolio. They sort of weed out some of the companies that that they think through different measures. I mean, we talked about price to earning ratio, and that's a common one. But I mean, a lot of these companies have their own proprietary algorithms that they use to vet companies for what they think is overvalued, undervalued, et cetera, and uh, bring them into the portfolio. Portfolio to try to beat the market, so I think uh, that is a good way to get into ESG for people who don't have a lot of money and maybe don't have a lot of time to manage their their portfolios, and then maybe play with a handful of stocks on the side. And you can even read what the ESG criteria is. Like for example, some companies uh, with ESG don't invest in alcohol or tobacco companies or cannabis companies, right? Like, would we necessarily consider that ESG? I mean, it depends on who you are. I don't think that there's anything wrong with having a drink every now and then. I don't think it's part of our culture and stuff like that. But then again, some companies say no. That contradicts our social aspect of ESG, right? I think it's a really complicated area. I think that there is an ability to make money, but I think that there's a lot of risk there as well.
1: The waters are muddy in the yeah. ESG field. And it's, it's interesting you mentioned oil because that's something that I've really been looking at and carbon offsets are huge. If a company produces you know, X number of tons of carbon, but then they purchase offsets from a project that plants trees and they end up net zero, in my mind, that's a net zero company the world's still going to need oil. So if they can get down to zero emissions by planting trees to offset their carbon, I mean, I think that's better. To be honest, I,
0: I think that that's the way that it's got to go. I mean, as much yeah. as the, like, I love the idea of electric cars. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I do. I think it's way overdue. You still got a power grid. So if, you, if you're going to electrify everything, like think about heavy industry, right? I think Volvo, was doing a pilot project somewhere where they were constructing a building or something like that using entirely uh, the, like a net zero construction project and all the heavy equipment was electrified and that's fine as a pilot project but what how long is it going to take to make that mainstream and if you can make it mainstream where is the energy coming from from the grid thing too like the the technology changes and the problems the new problems that arise when you when you change technology i was reading one of your threads and you were talking about wind farms And about uh, carbon hexafluoride and the increase in carbon hexafluoride as they try to increase the grid to support the wind farms and stuff like that. And the fact that the carbon hexafluoride in the atmosphere has grown what is it more than double in the last uh, decade or two almost a straight correlation with the with the expansion of the green energy projects and it's a i think it, someone someone was quoted in one of those threads as saying like it's a super greenhouse gas it's it's much more harmful than a, than a methane or a carbon dioxide and it's a problem that's coming up as we try to pivot and as we try to change and so now we've got to we, we've got to get an offset of that I think it's a good idea to, to go in that direction. I think we need to go in that direction. I am really, really skeptical as to whether or not we would be able to make the deadlines that they're, that they're looking to make um, to avoid the impacts, that, the real catastrophic impacts that are going to happen uh, through through the amount of temperature change that we're going to get probably by the end of the decade. Um, just because it would be too much of a disruption to our regular everyday lives to do it. I think a lot of people that support green initiatives in general, but they may not be willing to swallow the pill that comes along with the, with the, with the tough decisions that you have to make in order to do that, like higher bills, higher cost of living. And I mean, electrification of vehicles. I mean, we're talking infrastructure, even like, I I like to go camping in the summer and, uh, and I, 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 dig the idea of that ford lightning truck but i'm but all i'm thinking about is okay what's its tow capacity and how long is this thing really going to last if i'm towing and especially if i'm towing up north am i going to be able to am i am i going to be able to go between
1: stations without uh without running out of juice i mean they do advertise their rain but if you're going 24 hours north you're going to need a traditional gasoline or diesel truck That's, well you know there's no way around it and there's
0: and some there's some cool stuff that are coming up from some companies too like i again I was listening to another podcast where they were talking about a couple that decided to go on a cross country trip with a fully electric vehicle in Canada, and the concern was i mean when you when you're going up in northern Canada, of course. I mean, even gas stations—if you're not prepared—can be. It can be like 350 clicks between gas stations. So if you're not paying attention, you know, you can get the trouble that way. And so the 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 lady on there said that she meticulously mapped out uh, where all the charging stations were and stuff like that to make sure that they can make it and how much charge time they'd need, how much travel time. And then uh, she said she got on the road and I think she was driving a Tesla. Turn on the Tesla, and the Tesla did it automatically for her. She wasted all her time because it automatically picks up all. The, all the stations in the in at the time so I mean companies are doing really cool things to help out and technology is doing really cool things to help out as well And I have no doubt at all that we are going to be able to develop the technology to solve a lot of the problems that are going to come up in the in the coming years and I like that there's as much drive around environmental protection as there is and as much popularity around but if we're talking about uh, if we're talking about like these short-term relatively short-term goals that are coming up it's it's just going to be too quick, I think, to to really, for us to really be able to pivot. And I mean, most of the pundits around there, as much as you get wishful thinking and stuff like that. I mean, I, the the U.S. major spy agencies in the U.S. came out, their major intelligence agencies came out with a report, I think a month and a half ago, which essentially said, like, we're not going to make the targets that we have set for ourselves, that we are going to break through that 1.5 degrees Celsius barrier um, by the end of the decade, that we are going to see increased pressures in terms of demographics, in terms of conflicts between countries, in terms of environmental degradation, loss of agricultural or arable land, Uh, Flooding and all that stuff that's all going to happen and it's all going to cause challenges socially for for things like national security and stuff like that we're already seeing it happen. In terms of like immigration and demographics and uh, and people trying to leave areas that are that are really being impacted by climate change and, and being pushed up against borders of uh, places where they think there's going to be more opportunity to live a better life
1: i think that the key for this entire thing is going to be innovation which is why people make the argument that oh well if the globe is creating a lot of carbon why should we in canada care why should we as a near carbon neutral country with our boreal forests and everything else why should we be the ones biting the bullet for higher energy but in my mind i kind of look at north america as the place that needs to innovate this energy where if if we've been doing this for 200 years longer than everybody else then we need to be the ones that come up with the solution And the only way we're going to do that is with investment i think i think it's a good point that you made with investing and finding the right companies and that you know, I think probably ETFs or some kind of mutual ESG fund or, or whatever is probably the best way to go in this industry because we don't know where the investment going to come from and we don't know who's got the best technology yet.
0: Yeah, I think big companies that uh, that run
1: ETF or, or mutual funds
0: are, are handy to, to, to build a good foundation for your portfolio. And I may be a little bit biased that way, but uh, but I think that ETFs typically like they're really popular because they've, they've got lower fees. They're typically passively managed. So they'll try to run to a benchmark. Then you've got more actively managed funds like mutual funds that companies usually manage. And, and some are better than others. And some offer higher fees than others, but but you tend to, to eat a bit more fee on those. But you they're also actively managed. Which means that they try tactical asset changes and and run a few more tools to try to do a little bit more than what the benchmark does. So a good way to to, to check those is just to see what the returns are, typically net of fees over time. You, you you don't necessarily mind paying a fee as long as you're getting value for it. And there's and there's a lot of companies that actually do tend to outperform the market and tend to outperform benchmarks. So there's a lot there's a lot that you can do there. With a with a fairly minimal amount of research to to pick up and like i said then you read the you, you read what criteria that they use for esg and see whether or not that the that jives with you in terms of like your own morality and what, and what you want out of an esg fund and then use that to i i would say build your base and then uh, and then pick up the the sort of companies that pick and choose some individual companies that maybe you uh you, you take personal interest in and think, yeah, I think this one's going to be, I I call them my moonshots. You know, a lot of the time the companies that I look at, and again, I'm not, I'm not really qualified to advise on this, but a lot of the companies I look I, I look for are usually fairly small cap companies. But I really dig what they're doing, but, and I don't try to day trade them. I'm a buy and hold type it, type of guy. I think you day trade you you can get yourself into trouble unless you so like don't get me wrong. Some people can make a really good living off of it. Some people like buying buying long and short. Some people like riding the the, the market up and down and making making Money both ways, and some people have their systems, and some people are good at it. I think most people talk to more people who've lost money trying to do that than than most. I think they from for me anyway, I try to find value. I try to find the companies that uh, that are the best for me, pick them up, and pick them up in a in a in a way that's tax efficient and possible, like a tax free savings account, as long as they're not individual us companies that are paying dividends you probably are right in the tfsa even if they are paying dividends in us companies you're no worse off than if they if it was in a non-registered portfolio or a non-registered fund in canada anyway so really if you like the company go for it but by taking them tax-free especially some of the smaller cap companies if they do start to do anything and mutual funds as well you're not going to pay any tax on them at all whether it's capital gains or interest or dividends as long as they're Canadian dividends. So that's gravy. And even if you hold them, I'd usually recommend maxing out your your registered savings like a tax-free first. But even if you're holding them outside, I mean, capital gains are the the most efficiently taxed form of investment income. Dividends are next to that. So so both of those types of companies would be dynamite for long-term investors. Uh, both in terms of like tax efficiency and also in terms of like moral investing right? investing in something that you really want to move the move the world in, in
1: into a better direction, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think that if you're gonna be a DIY investor, You really got to look in the mirror and figure out what you want to do. And if you're going to be somebody that picks stocks, you know, you got to have a lot of passion for it because you're going to be looking at this stuff all the time. takes a lot of time too, right? Like that's it. Mm -hmm. That's the
0: thing. That's the thing that uh, a lot of people, who hear about people who make money in the market don't uh, don't understand is that it's almost another full time job if you really want to get into it and and you want to be successful in it. I mean, you can get lucky. Don't get me wrong, but if you really want to understand what you're investing in, and if you're not going for mutual funds, so mutual funds, ETFs are a little bit different because they are managed. The benefit of them is that other people do all the work for you, right? They're managed by someone else. And, and they're they're about as close to a sure thing as you can get. To be honest with you, if if you hold a mutual fund, especially a really well diversified mutual fund, long enough, you're going to make money. I would say as, as close to a sure thing as, a, as you can possibly get. If you're a growth investor, you probably want to be making around 10% a year at least, right? And you can do that. If you can do that if you're picky and you choose mutual funds right i think that you can average that over time for individual investments it takes a lot more time right like you said you have to have a passion for it you have to be willing to take the time to look into the companies look at what they're doing look at what the what their policy statements are look at look at whether or not they are declaring and whether they got a net zero strategy and whether or not it's a realistic strategy. Whether or not it's going to be an impactful strategy. For example, Saudi Arabia said they were going to be net zero by 2060. Who cares, right? I'd right, say, so I mean, be lucky if I'm still alive in 2060, to be honest with you. But companies that are looking for net zero within this decade and actually have an action plan to try to do it are very, very cool um, companies that have a good record on human rights, preserving the environment and uh, and making sure that the processes are, are, are fairly decent in terms of not really impacting the environment and, and taking strides to try to work with local communities and stuff like that where where they're working to try to make sure that they're enriching the community and not disadvantaging or disenfranchising wherever they are working, which has been a really, really big problem with like mineral extraction and stuff like that in the developing world. I mean, it's got a really bad uh, reputation for that, whether it be oil or precious metals or whatever you have, really bad reputation. So you've got to be careful with those companies. But the companies that have a really good, uh, really good policy and track record of trying to focus on doing that stuff are great but you have to take time to to research the company and you have to and obviously in order to do that you have to take time and you have to like to do that sort of work you have to be kind of passionate about it
1: one last thing i want to ask you before i let you go is when we talk about esg and we talk about money movement there could be A time when ESG takes over and this is the new trend. This is a new thing that everybody wants. And in my mind, I struggle to find a place where tech is still the leader in ESG. So like you think about Facebook, for example, Mm -hmm. what's going to happen when everybody says, look, we don't like what Facebook's doing from a social standpoint. They're no longer in our ESG portfolio how do you think that that could pan out in the markets if ESG begins to take over from growth in tech?
0: I mean, the, the, the beautiful thing about tech is that it encompasses so many different types of companies, right? So I think that, that tech is ultimately gonna be the driver of esg really but you're right the big thing for me is what kind of what kind of standardization criteria are we going to have in order for that to happen because i think we need a standardization globally of, of what criteria follows esg so people can trust the label esg like if you look at facebook i mean it's already under fire for multiple reasons socially so much so that they're rebranding and i think they're calling it meta now or something like that but yeah i mean i think that a company like that a guess social networking company could be in trouble that way if they're not agile if they're not willing to pivot and make sure that they're moving the right way that's a, that's the interesting thing with tech in companies and i think uh, i think one of your your former uh folks that came on to the podcast mentioned that he can't imagine you know, necessarily facebook going away in the next 10 years it's one of those companies that's it, that's kind of a, a stalwart big tech company and stuff like that but i mean they really are fair weather some of the companies like they, if you look at napster for example i mean it was a it was the big company that yeah, it's not like it was listed or anything like that but nobody talks about napster now when you when you when you're talking about downloading or streaming music i mean that's a that's a dinosaur it's a footnote in history right uh facebook's different because it's a huge company and it's got to be a bunch of smaller companies and it does have a really good revenue stream but the trouble with those social platforms is that one misstep one bit of bad marketing and it, it really could find itself being canceled right like like people will just uh you jump off like people are fickle and, and really they depend on crowds of people they depend on the mob to use that resource so whether it's facebook whether it's instagram whether it's uh twitter or whatever else it, it really is dependent on people's demand on using it what i do think tech is going to be a, a really big impact on is coming up with solutions to a lot of the problems Around. like If you look at carbon capture, for example, we really don't have a scalable carbon capture system that I think is going to be efficient and effective and works yet. I just don't think that it's there. I don't think that we have a solution to the energy gap. If we were going to phase out coal globally, we would have to fill that gap with something. I don't think it's there yet. You know, solar's gotten a lot better. It's it's gotten a lot more cost efficient. Wind, I think, is already at its max. I mean, you can put out more wind turbines, but I don't think it's gonna get much, much more efficient than it is right now. You've got different sources of energy, like tidal and stuff like that, that we haven't tapped yet. But I think it's gonna be tech that's, uh, that's gonna be leading the way. And I think the big thing is gonna be information, data, metadata, in terms of how to effectively manage the grid, how to effectively manage around peak times and lower times, what kind of uh, what kind of physical capital we need to invest in what areas in order to be able to, to, to manage that stuff. I mean, there's a, there's a whole market, a a whole area, a whole area of industry that doesn't exist yet. That's going to be tech forefront. So I think in the governance thing, I think it's always fickle. And I think that's the same way for any company. And for example, if uh, shell, were to operate in nigeria and and have another situation where they have protesters you know local inhabitants protesting the protesting the oil wells and stuff like that and they ended up shooting 10 or 12 of them which happened back in the 90s i mean that could be a big impactor for whether or not esg companies will, will will include them in portfolios and i think the biggest thing with esg the biggest way that it will take off is if the big institutional investors your hedge funds and stuff like that start moving their money According to that, I think BlackRock's talked about it a little bit. I know some of the other major financial institutions in Canada already have policies around ESG, and it's not necessarily just those specific ESG funds, but they're expanding them to all of their investments to the point where they're going to vote with their wallets and say, like, we're just not going to invest in in you if you have these habits of doing things because it's going to be bad for our business.
1: I mean, there's so much there. Like, for, for carbon capture, it's really interesting. They're finding ways to use carbon. So, you know, some of these oil wells shoot carbon into the ground to get more oil out. Yeah. And the carbon stays there. So it's, you know, sequestration. That's just a way of using carbon to their advantage. And, you know, the technology is going to develop that further, I think, and innovate. But then also when you talk about big tech and energy and servers and data, I mean, all the energy that that's going to consume is going to be something to manage as well. You think about the metaverse, how much, how many server rooms are going to need for that. It's kind of like Bitcoin. There's a new Bitcoin ETF that are buying offset. So they're, they're claiming it's, you know, green Bitcoin. So you know, offsets, I think are going to be key in this and it'll be really interesting to see how it moves forward. Whole new industry. Right. With, with offsets, you, you're, you're
0: going to get companies that, that essentially operate just by providing offsets, I think, to the companies that can't completely eliminate, get the, get the net zero. I mean, there's profitability to be had there for a new industry that doesn't exist right now and, and really it, an artificial industry created by regulation, which is probably a good thing.
1: Well, I mean, there already is Carbon Streaming Corp. That's exactly what they do. And they just invest in carbon offset programs and then sell the offsets at a higher price to other companies. But with that being said, I think that was great. We obviously have a lot more to talk about. Have you on again if you'd like? And absolutely, anytime. Yeah, if there's anything else you want to say or
0: no, man, that's it. That's great. Like you said, I I think we bounced around a little bit, which is uh, which is okay. Yeah. I enjoyed talking with you. This stuff is uh, is fun for me. It's uh, it's nice to be able to chat about it and sort
1: of try to figure out where things are going. So yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. No worries. I really appreciate your insight on uh, ESG and money movement. So thanks for coming on. Yeah. Pleasure. Thanks, bud. Joe
0: is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.